Hey, if you're enjoying this show, uh, consider supporting us on our Patreon. You can get cool perks like access to these episodes a week before they go public, and you can pick an album for us to review. Any support is greatly appreciated, so if you feel inclined, go to patreon.com slash polyphonicpress. Polyphonic Press, the podcast where two music fans pick a classic album completely at random and analyse it track by track. Using the patented random album generator, they are given an album to review from a curated list of over 1,000 classic releases spanning multiple genres. And now onto the show. Here are your hosts, Jeremy Boyd and John Van Dyke. Welcome to Polyphonic Press. I'm Jeremy Boyd. And I'm John Van Dyke. And uh, basically, if you don't know how the show works, we have no idea what album we're going to be listening to. We uh, review classic albums and we pick them completely at random. We've got a a program uh, to uh, pick the album for us. So all we have to do is click the button. So let's hit the button. The list list is a compilation of a whole bunch of different lists of Mm -hmm. classic albums thrown in. I just don't know if that's been clarified. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I took it from, uh, the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Rolling Stones, 500 greatest albums of all time. And obviously there's going to be overlaps between the two, but, uh, I figured we'd cover all our bases by pulling it from, uh, that. And I think there was another list too. So we've got a lot of albums to go through. (laughs) But uh, let's hit the button here and uh, see what album we're going to be listening to this week. The and R.A.G. Yeah. Let's see what the R.A.G. will tell us. The random album generator. Oh, oh yes. Yes. And the album we're going to be listening to is The Band, The Band. The Band. Cool. All right. This is actually, uh, I should clarify, this is actually an album I am familiar with. Like, I have heard this album. I think I might have heard at least certainly certainly parts of it, and it was probably a while ago. Although you know, there's songs from this album all over the radio, yeah, even to this day, yeah. Um, so yeah. Okay, so the band is the self-titled second studio album uh, by the band. Um, Basically, if you don't know, the band were um, a group of musicians who started out as a backing band for various artists. Uh, Most notably was Ronnie Hawkins. They were known as Ronnie and the Hawks. Um, And uh, they uh, eventually ended up backing Bob Dylan on his uh, 1965-66 tour, the... uh, famous tour where Dylan went electric and everybody got pissed off at him. <laughs> Which happens to be my favorite period for Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, those three albums, uh, Highway yep. 61, Blonde on Blonde and Bringing It All Back Home. Um, those three albums are my favorite of Dylan's. But anyway, uh, so in, I think by 1968, they decided where they wanted to, well, I think what actually happened was Bob Dylan, um, the tour got cut short. Uh, Bob Dylan got into a motorcycle accident and had to cancel the rest of the tour. And so they decided, you know, we're going to go in and, and 
you know, record some stuff on our own. We've been writing songs and, and what came out was their debut album was, uh, um, songs from big pink and big pink was this, uh, big pink house in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York. And I think this album was recorded there too. Um, but, uh, it was just a house that they lived in and they put in a recording studio in the basement and, uh, that's where they made their first album anyway. And also recorded the famous basement tapes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, this album, this is the follow-up to that, that album. Um, it's the second studio released. It is known as the ba- the Brown album because the cover is, is, uh, Brown. Brown. They're really uh, original. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes at least to their, uh, um, you know, album namings. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, um, so what is it? After unsuccessfully attempting sessions at a studio in New York, the band set up shop in the pool house of a home rented by the group in the Hollywood hits. Okay. So this was mostly recorded in Los Angeles. I thought okay. that big pink. Okay. Um, uh, where was it located at 8850 Evanview Drive in Los Angeles? Um, oh, that's interesting. The home was once owned by Judy Garland and, and Willie Cox. And at the time, the group Wally there, Cox, a oh, Wally Cox, um, the group worked there. It was owned by Sammy Davis Jr. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, so I mean, this is this album has uh, a lot of the 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 Bands classics like Up on Cripple Creek, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, Rag Mama Rag, um, basically the, the radio staples that you hear. Um, but uh, okay, so the first song is called uh, Across the Great Divide. So here we go. I uh, I always like that song and. Uh, it's um what I it's a pretty um I guess positive and uplifting feeling to it and I like the uh, sort of the interplay between the organ and the and the horns. Yeah. You know. Yeah, the horn horn sections around this period have never sounded better in my opinion. Horn yeah. sections just sound so great from the the late sixties, early seventies. There's several bands that use them, and I'm. I don't ever remember hearing them recorded poorly or anything. They just have this particular sound uh, when you think of like early Chicago and yeah, blood, sweat and tears and cold blood, stuff like that. I just love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, the band, like they're, they're great musicians and, and the, this was obviously recorded. I think they recorded most of their stuff live. Um and, off the floor, uh, yeah, yeah, live off the floor, yeah, and uh, um, like it's it's a it, it's sim- it's a simple recording in the sense that there's not a whole lot of um, there's not a lot of fluff, I guess. There, it's just you know meat and potatoes kind of stuff with some horn. The horns add a little bit, but it's not in your face. Um, they're just uh, just kind of tasteful. Um, yeah, you know, I yeah I. I I, I don't know what else to say about it, really. I mean, it's just, um, you know, these guys are great. It's a great song. And, it's a good uh, opening track. Good opening track, yeah. Um, yeah, that one wasn't a hit. Not that I'm aware of. That was never a hit, but it's a popular song. Yeah. But it's not, uh, it wasn't one of their bigger hits or no. anything like that. 
but yeah. But it's a song that I I always liked. Um so yeah. Alrighty then. Alright, so uh the next song is called Rag Mama Rag. I love I love that I always like that ending. That, <laughs> you know, it's it, it obviously they were gonna maybe fade, try and f- maybe fade it out or something and maybe. jam it out when the and and uh, the piano player with Darth Hudson was just kind of caught off guard so yeah. he's just up in the higher keys and he just yeah. kept going for a bit yep yeah um again a really simple uh simple arrangement um i always love the fiddles in there the two two fiddles the the tuba um, the tuba of a, a bass line yeah so yeah. i always thought that was cool and it's just um a throwback to, uh, I don't know if it would be like honky tonk or something. Uh, well, ragtime. Ragtime, yeah. Yeah. Um, I got to say, um, Levon Helm's drum playing in that is pretty spot on. It's a really dry drum sound. It is. Um, but he's fantastic. Just in, Yeah, and the breaks that he was doing, the, the fills that he was playing, yeah. it's like, oh, he's really on top of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, he was, he's um, one of my favorite drummers. And if you ever watch The Last Waltz, mm-hmm. um, just watching him play the drums, I've never seen anyone just look so natural playing an instrument. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like, it's... Although I always thought that maybe his neck would get a little sore after a while. With his yeah, because he's leaning He's over. always got his head turned... To, <laughs> Almost to sing look, into the microphone. Yeah, yeah, and it looks like it's turned at quite an angle. I would have placed the microphone a little bit more in front of me personally. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. He always did that for some reason. Yeah. yeah. Whatever he's comfortable with, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you, you don't get a lot of uh, lead singer drummers, really. Yeah, Phil uh, Collins. That's the only other one I can really think of at the, off the top of my head. Phil Collins and... Um, maybe Don Henley. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, you don't get it. And it's it, okay. Playing the drums and singing lead is, is hard to do. Uh, cause you, it's easy to get lost. You, you know, dr- drumming takes up, you know, at least three, or all of your limbs really. <laughs> um, so you have to keep the time with that and then sing on top of that. It's really tricky to do. Uh, so there aren't a lot of, uh, drummer lead singers. Um, I think even singing backup as a drummer, uh, you, you oftentimes you see the one, uh, the one person without a microphone as the drummer. It's not yeah. always the case though. Yeah. Um, I think of Roger Taylor. He always had a microphone. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, he's a great backup singer. Yeah. I know. And sometimes lead singer. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, who else was I thinking? Somebody else came to mind. I lost them though. Whatever. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, singing and playing drums is not an easy thing to do. No, I respect anybody who can pull it off. Really? I mean, singing, uh, okay. Singing and strumming chords is pretty, is you know, it's not easy, but it's easier. But but playing playing a riff on a guitar and trying to sing at the same time mm. that get, that can get pretty tricky. Yeah, you know. But uh, yeah, uh, the it takes it takes practice to to get that good. Yeah, well, it's something I 
maybe should mention because it suddenly came to my head like uh, back in their hawks days like my grandfather used to hang out with well he used to hang out at a place called crane plaza which is just north of toronto Mm -hmm. and apparently the hawks played there all the time oh yeah this is in late 50s i guess um so my grandfather would oftentimes like he didn't know them really well but he would sometimes talk to them after shows and stuff like that because my grandfather was um there was another band around called um um actually my uncle or my great uncle Mm-hmm. Um, was a guitar player in this film. What were they called? Oh, um, the Canadian Meteors. I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Damn it, the name's not coming to me. And I've only I heard that the 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 the, the uh, 45 not even that long ago, or uh, found it on YouTube. But uh, yeah, anyway, my grandfather used to drive them around his 49 Ford with barely no floor and it used to be basically their band van cool and he would he he took out the the it was a business coupe so it had no back seat anyway so mm-hmm. he took out the supports for uh um that would be uh through between the trunk and and where the back seat would normally be there's like these like cross braces mm-hmm. he could he took them out so they could stick the stand-up base right through oh, yeah so as they're driving like the stand-up base is sitting in the trunk but the neck is way up Right. Um, then it, it had no case. It was just yeah. in there. It's just in there, shoved and in there. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, the neck is right up next to my grandfather as he's driving. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was basically the car that he would drive this band around all over the yeah. place. Um, but yeah, that was sort of the uh, the scene back in the day. Um, Before yeah. Vans. Before fans, well, there were sedan deliveries, and my grandfather yeah. had one of those later, but mm-hmm. he didn't have one at the time. Right. Um. But uh, no, uh, the Hawks were around for, geez, decades. They were still part of the Toronto scene even as late as. Oh, they would still be around in the late sixties sometimes. One of the um, so I that just reminded me of an interesting story. Uh, that I saw an interview with Robbie Robin, Robbie Robertson. Um, and he, I think, I don't know if they were playing with Ronnie Hawkins or somebody else, but they were playing down in Dallas, Texas Mm -hmm. and they were playing in a club and, uh, they were playing the, the owner of the club was Jack Ruby. Mm -hmm. And if you know who Jack Ruby is, he's the one who shot. Lee Harvey Oswald after yeah. he was arrested for assassinating John F. Kennedy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was, this, this was like a year before that <laughs> happened. So they did, weren't involved or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, all of a sudden Jack Ruby's a, you know, a household name for killing Lee Harvey Oswald. It's like, wait, we, we worked with that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so wait, was this in like, uh, what year would this have been? Like, because well, Lee Harvey Oswald, when was he caught? Like, this would have been. Well, Kennedy was assassinated in November '63. Yeah. So this, you know, Oswald, this, the whole thing happened within days. So okay, that was uh, November of '63 when Oswald was just. So it must have been '62. So this were. would have been. They were still touring with uh, Ronnie Hawkins then. Yeah, it must have been. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So they were playing a club that was owned by, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Well, you know, 
And Jack Ruby had uh, ties to the mafia, and it was a, like a mafia-run club kind of thing. But he was pissed off that he shot Kennedy. Um, <laughs> I guess I don't. I don't want to get into the whole conspiracy theory of no. Right now, but basically, yeah, he yeah. he he might he might have been um, contracted to take care. Oh, of, uh, gotcha, Oswald. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um. I was remembering another story about the Hawks. Um, and I think I probably mentioned this back when we were doing the other podcast. I was talking about um, the Mina Birds. Mm-hmm. When, um, so those of you listening, if you're not, not aware, the Mina Birds was a band from uh, the uh, Yorkville days of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, uh, Neil Young on guitar. There's a few other people. There's a couple of other, like, uh, Buffalo Springfield guys. And uh, I can't remember who else. And, uh, but the Rick James. Yes, that Rick James was the lead singer. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people are going, what? I just know it. <laughs> because that is such a crazy story. Yeah. But when Rick James first showed up in Toronto... Uh, he was in a bar. He was draft dodging. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why he was in Toronto. Uh, he wound up in a bar or something, got in a fight with somebody. Uh, he got beaten up really, really bad. So he was basically just laying on the street on, I think it was like King Street or something like that. And I think it was like Levon Helm and Garth Hudson happened to stumble, stumble upon him. <laughs> and they got him up and helped him and cleaned him up and whatever. <laughs> See, the thing is... <laughs> If that's how we got introduced to the music scene in, in Toronto. Yeah. But yeah. But the the thing is, if you're draft dodging and trying to get away, you probably want to keep a low profile and not get into fights. Yeah, but this is Rick you James. Know. Yeah, I know. So, I know. you know, he's yeah. in a band with uh, Neil Young and they wind up, they decide, you know, they're, they're getting a bit of a following. So they go to um, Michigan to record their single. Yeah. And of course they're they're only there they record like two or three songs and then of course he gets picked up for draft dodging. Yeah. It's like don't go back for, to the states. First rule for do- do- draft dodging. Don't go back to the states. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know whatever. Anyway, that was his first arrest that we're aware of. Um yeah. we know of, that was certainly not his last. Not his last. No. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's for sure. The rap sheet begins. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so Mina Birds basically dissolve at that point. Neil Young and oh, what's his name? Uh, the bass player hop in a Neil Young's hearse, drive to California, and, and hook there, up with no. Stephen Stills. And exactly. The rest of it. Yeah. So that's how that story goes. It's all connected. But yeah, if, if it wasn't for Garth Hudson and, Neil, and Levon Helms discovering him, uh, you might not even know who uh, Rick James is. Yeah. Very <laughs> true. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Crazy story. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, the uh, the next song on the album is probably one of their bigger and, and best, better known songs. Uh, it's called uh, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. I like the harmonica in the background in parts. Yeah. It sort of gives it a bit of a, a haunting flavor, but it's like a uh, a countryish 
old-timey haunting flavor. Mm-hmm. It's not like a theremin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a bit um, different. Yeah. Um, again, I mean, like, th- these songs, the, the recordings, they're really sparse. But, um, I mean, all it is is a piano, bass, drums, and guitar. You You don't really want anything too modern on there. Um, so I, you know, the, the instruments really just kind of fit the mood of the song. It's a well-written song. It's always been one of my favorites. Um, I know it's a crowd pleaser whenever they would play it. They they would close every show with it, I think. And, um, yeah, they would. It's interesting. It's only the third song on the album. Yeah. It's, they, uh, they put it pretty early on, on this album for some reason. But I guess I, they they found it just sort of worked really well at the end of shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we'll move on to the next one. The, the next song is called uh, When You Awake. All right. Um, I have a few things to say about that song. Um, didn't capture me as, as much as I as much as the other ones, it's an okay song. Um, it kind of faded out at a weird point where he's yeah. still singing. Um, yeah, I think it was basically the song was, was finished and it was sort of like a fade out. Um, I, I like the opening of it. Mm-hmm. It caught, it captured my attention, but the song didn't keep my attention the same yeah, way. That exactly. was sort of the thing. Yeah. Um, the guitar tone on it. I mean, I just love things like that. And of course that, um, organ in there and behind it's just that combination from always does it for me mm-hmm. but uh yeah it, it was a little bit of a it's not one of the uh you know the prime cuts on this particular slab of meat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah um the one thing that i thought was cool though was the way the drums uh were recorded and it mm-hmm. sounded like they were using um just a, a microphone in 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 a room, uh, yeah. rather than having them close mic'd, and I thought that that was kind of cool. It sounded cool, and it gave the song some some room, I guess. Um, I like that, but uh, you know, I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's just kind of an kind of an underwhelming song, I guess. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's got to happen once in a while. Yeah, <laughs> you know, every every. I don't think there's a band. That or an artist that doesn't have a, a subpar song. It's just the way it's going to happen. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on the negatives. So let's uh, move on to the next one. This uh, one is a hit for this sure. This one is a hit. Probably it's up there. Either this one or the weight are the, are the two biggest songs that are are their biggest hits probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, uh, up on Cripple Creek. Yeah. I always like that song too. Uh, One of the more interesting intros and it's, I instantly, uh, identifiable, but I always thought the intro was a little bit strange, but not in a bad way. I kind of always liked it. Yeah. It's, it's a funky sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so apparently that, uh, the clavinet that um, Garth Hudson was playing with the Wawa, the the sound they were trying to get was like um, you know those what are they called? Oh, jaw harp, jaw harp. That's yeah. the sound that they were trying to to get with that because um, they mm-hmm. wanted that in the song, but nobody. 
I, I maybe I guess no one. I, I don't had think one. it was being. Uh, they didn't. It didn't. Wasn't coming out right on the recording, so they had to kind of fake it with the clavinet. Mm. It doesn't really sound like that. It has its own sort of sound. Yeah, honestly, no, that's that, what they were trying. That's what they were trying to go yeah. for. But they wound up sort of creating this other sort of funky thing, which honestly is a very seventies sound. Mm-hmm. Um, you would hear it a little bit more in throughout the seventies. Yeah, uh, probably the a, most famous is uh, um, "Superstition" by Stevie Wonder. Yeah. That's probably the most famous sound. And you, and you would actually, you would also hear it in a lot of, um, uh, well, you would hear it in a lot of like black exploitation films and yeah. a lot of, um, like cop shows. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was, it was pretty ubiquitous in the seventies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The clavinet, uh, uh, and the wah pedal, like yeah. either separately or together. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. Um, it, it, true uh, shaft, but that's just the, the one wah pedal. But yeah, the, still muted guitar. Yeah, you sort of get the idea. Oh, yeah. and, and porn soundtracks. Oh yeah, evidently. Yes, not that I would know. <laughs> <laughs> um, this um, I, and I don't know if this was maybe uh one of the first uh songs to use the clavinet. Um, cause when, do you know, I don't know anything about it. Like when was it invented? Oh, I don't know. I think, I don't know. I think it's earlier than that. Cause I think it's a, it's basically an electric version of like a harpsichord sort of thing, I think is what they were going for. Yeah. Uh, yeah, not a hundred percent sure. I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, that's a bit of a gap in my knowledge when it comes to vintage equipment <laughs> yeah um yeah it'd be worth looking up anyway yeah i don't know obviously it was around by like 68 69 when they're using this i'm sure it's earlier than that probably yeah i doubt the first time a clavinet would be used would be trying to mimic a jaw harp no probably it's not. just yeah Funny. it might be it might be one of the first times it's used in a in like a, a contemporary rock setting yeah sort of that wouldn't surprise me at all so i'm i just looked it up the clavinet was invented in germany um in 1964 oh there you go it's only about five years old at the time then yeah so it's it was still a pretty new instrument yeah um when they were using it but still i mean it probably it probably it you know what it probably was it was probably Garth Hudson having a new toy wanting to play with it. That's <laughs> always part of it. Yeah. If it's not all of it, it's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We um, need we need a jaw harp. I got a thing that sort of sounds like a like a jaw harp. It doesn't really say it sounds a bit like a jaw harp. It's not really that much. It sounds a bit like a jaw harp. <laughs> Probably, see, yeah. see, well, it does sound kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably exactly how. <laughs> um, anyway, um, yeah, the, uh, and the guitar work on this song is, has always been really yep. good i mean robbie robertson i think he i think he's an underrated guitar player he's understated and underrated yes yeah um 
he's not like a flashy guitar player, but he's mm-hmm. he's he's tasty. He knows what he's doing, and he never does more than than what's like needed for a song or something like that. Yeah, um, which takes restraint, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he's fast and fantastic songwriter as well. Um, yep, he's cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, moving on the. Uh, the next song is called uh, Whispering Pines. Awesome. Uh, that was uh, Richard Manuel singing that. Mm. Um, he's a great voice. I wish they'd used him more. He did use him quite a bit. I know yeah. uh, I've heard him in, in quite a few things. Um I'm trying to think. There's one song that they're known for that he sings, and I can't remember which one it is. Um, yeah, I don't remember which one that was. Anyway, one thing that, you know, again, caught my attention was that, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what kind of organ sounds almost Farfisa-ish, or it could be something like a Vox Continental or something like that, in the background, sort of just sort of like carrying it, and but at times it swells and it gets a little dirty and I kind of like that. Yeah. It sounds really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that too. And it's, um, yeah. And it's, it's not, uh, like in your face or anything. It's no. just, you know, it's just creating an atmosphere. Right. Um, the other thing that I liked it too is on the last verse, uh, they were doing, um, like a call and response kind of thing. Yeah. But the, the first vocal was like washed in reverb and this you sounded very distant. And then it was this, the response was like up close. And I thought that was a really cool sort of uh, a juxtaposition that they, that they did. I thought that was a really cool effect. Yeah. Well, it sounded like uh, Richard's uh, voice. Um, it was, uh, uh, it's the one that was the lead that was doing the, uh, um, the, he, he had the reverb on there. His was had the presence. Yeah. But he had the reverb on there. But then there was Lee Von Helm, which was a little bit pared back. Yeah. But it was a drier vo- vocal. Yeah. Um, it sounded like it was through a, a an older style microphone, mm-hmm. but there was no effects on it or anything like that. But it was just sort of like they're kind of responding in the yeah. background. Yeah, that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and it's and you know again the drumming on it. I mean, he I think he was using brushes and just playing really softly. Just you know, it's just a beautiful song, really. And I always I really liked it. All right. So uh, the next one is called uh, Jemima Surrender. Here we go. Cool. Yeah, I like that one. That was one. an awesome song. Yeah. I think that one might be my favorite, but I've always liked the funkier stuff. Yeah. Um, that guitar line was just awesome. That guitar. Oh, no, 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 no. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I noticed in there and I, um, is uh, there was a saxophone in there, but it was like a, I don't know if it was like a bass or a I think it's an alto saxophone. sax or something like that where it's yeah. got that lower end. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good sound for stuff like that yeah yeah i've always kind of liked that saxophones have always been i mean sometimes they can be used badly but when they're used well they fit it really 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 nicely yeah um yeah they're just really really good 
Um, yeah. Good sound. And and again, you don't want you you need uh, they they need to be somewhat dry, but you don't want them to. Um, you don't want them too upfront. You don't want them to, uh, you know, taking over, but they make this perfect sort of undercutting sound mm -hmm. to the, to the background it sort of fills in some of the space. If you want to fill in that space. Yeah. Um, it's just really cool. There was a, a lyric in there about, uh, playing on the fender and it suddenly yeah. made me remember, um, I was telling about my, uh, my, uh, my great uncle's band, um, he was one of the first people in certainly the Toronto scene to have a Fender Stratocaster. And this is about 1957. And uh, at one point they were playing a show and there was a whole bunch of other like rock and rollers coming up from the States and stuff like that. And everybody wanted to play his Stratocaster. <laughs> so every time they'd call on a new band, there's someone else uh, up on stage with the Stratocaster <laughs> playing... And and these are, these these weren't unknown rock and rollers either. So yeah. it's pretty cool. That's pretty um, cool. Yeah, he but he he, uh, he was always pawning it for beer, though. Oh, and so then got it back and then pawned. Uh, yeah, then, yeah. I I ultimately don't know what happened to it eventually, but I think he, I don't think he lost it that way. He might have, but I don't remember. Anyway. It's just another one of those stories. So pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. We, did, was 57, 57 was the first year for the 54 show. was the first 54. year. So yeah. 50. Yeah. And they were basically, it was just a two color sunburst for the first little while. And they started introducing custom colors, um, which is when you get like, uh, what's his name from the shadows? Actually, he, he painted his own, um, cause he got the, I forget what color it was when he got it. I think it was just brown, but it might've been something like a seafoam green, but he wanted red. So he got it painted red. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, you got to remember the, the Stratocaster when it came out was so wildly different than anything else that was out at the time. Um, well, it was the first, um, <laughs> It was the first guitar designed with ergonomics in mind. Yes. You know? It's true, because even the Telecaster was just, like... Jeff Beck had a, um, a an, es uh, an Esquire that he had... Uh, I don't know if he did it, but somebody did anyway, but it had, like, body contours shaved into it, because mm -hmm. he was playing it all the time. Um I think he still has that guitar. It's a really beat up guitar, but he used to use it in the Yardbirds all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's funny when we look back on the Stratocaster, we're almost bored of it because everybody and their uncle's dog has, you know, remade it, yeah. um, good, bad, or indifferent. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, at the time it was, what the hell is that thing? That's not, that doesn't look like a guitar. It looks like a blob from outer space with strings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yep. But yeah, I mean, it's got the uh, even even the on the top of the body, it's got the contour where you rest your um, arm. Yeah. Arm. It's like it's the it's I you know I when my first electric guitar was a, a Stratocaster, and it is it is more comfortable to play that mm -hmm. than other guitars. I mean, um, lots of guitars would put like an arm rest there 
And that was how they would deal with that sort of, instead of having like the thing cutting into your arm, they'd have like the sort of like plate thing that you can sort of lay your arm on. That would help. But it still had like, there's this gap, especially if you're still playing like a big hollow body. Mm -hmm. But Stratocaster is already sort of pretty much formed to your body. And then they rounded everything off, plus gave this contour not only for your belly to sit in, but also for for your arm to lay over. The thing was basically just meant to fit a human being. Yeah. So... Yeah. Um, yeah. It, and it's, uh, I can always tell when, uh, when someone's playing a strat, like it just yeah. has a distinct sound. Yeah. Um, well, sometimes it's know. a little hard to pick it from a Telecaster depending on the settings that are on it, but True. there are definitely, there are certain tones that a Stratocaster does that a Telecaster won't do. And there's certain sounds that a Telecaster does that a Stratocaster won't do. That's very true. Um, unless of course you're like uh, Paul Barrere from Little Feet where you put a Telecaster bridge pickup in your Stratocaster and then you can do it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Lowell George did that too, actually. Yeah, yeah. it's the Lowell George mod. And that actually, I was also thinking uh, Little Feet's another band that sort of. I was thinking like songs like Up on Cripple Creek and and this last one just sound like songs that they would do. It's just, yeah. it's uh, that sort of like swampy rock sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, one I band was from LA and one's from Canada. It's sort of interesting yeah. that they were doing like swamp stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, Levon Helms from Arkansas. So, yeah, that's right. He's from Arkansas. Yeah. So, yeah. So they're a little more authentic. <laughs> Slightly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, the next song uh, is called Rockin' Chair. Kind of got distracted there. I was just kind of lost in the song. <laughs> mm. um, that was actually... Uh, Levon Helm playing the mandolin on that. Mm. It's sort of like a folky bluegrass sort of thing going. I mean, I think they're trying to recreate the sound of sitting in a rocking chair on your front porch, just sort of jamming. Yeah. I think that's, again, they're, they're really going for this visual of like the, the sort of South, Southern American sort of music and, and, and uh, just life in general. They're trying to go for that visual and i mean even the cover of the the album and the songs the subject matter and and the sounds i mean trying to replicate a jaw harp they were trying to get a jaw harp i mean what else would you i mean other for like klezmer music or something like that even then it's more often you hear it in you know folk stuff from the south than you do yeah um so yeah and i've always uh I've always uh, kind of seen them that way. They're they're kind of not even a, the not way they dressed at the band. time. Yeah. yeah, no, they're not a country band. They're they're folk rock. Yeah, um, they're definitely sort of like a, a swamp rock band, but they were like a folk rock band. They sort of fell into the rock category, but rock had like uh, the doors were blown off of it in the mid '60s, and and anything could be mixed in with rock. And it was partly because of the psychedelic era, but just everybody was throwing all ingredients into it. It was yeah. the thing, and that's what people were exper- experimenting with. Well, I think of of the band, uh, you know, they're kind of like, um, they're sort of um, 
sort of a throwback. And I, I think mm-hmm. maybe by the end of the sixties, people were kind of tired of the psychedelic uh, rock stuff. And I think of bands like the band and Creedence Clearwater Revival were that were doing more, not retro, but like, I, maybe bringing rock back to its roots again. A little yeah, bit. it was a little bit more of a um, pared down. Yeah, um, yeah, taking it out of uh, other thing, but you could definitely tell that there were these influences that it had gone through, mm-hmm. that there were still elements sort of hanging around. Um, like there's still psychedelic elements in CCR stuff. Um, yeah. uh, you know, especially on that first album, the first album is actually still kind of psychedelic quite a bit and it came out mm-hmm. in 68, I think. So, you know, still yeah. in the throes of that. Um, but you could hear little bits of everything like that, even in Cosmos Factory. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of stuff in there that, that was, you know, influenced by stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, um, so that country rock and, and, and rockabilly and rock and roll, all of that stuff you would hear in, in stuff like CCR and, and these guys and, um, yeah, going into, yeah, and Little Feet and stuff like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, and these guys, I, I know the band played Woodstock, but did, uh, was CCR at Woodstock? I'm thinking they were, they weren't in the movie, but I think they did play Woodstock. Yeah. I think they were, they, they played, there was a lot of bands that played Woodstock. Yeah. Um, not all of them made the movie. So, yeah. So, so they were definitely part of the, the scene, but they were, oh, yeah. they weren't really, you know, and they, they were accepted, but they were, they're not a. I don't. They're not a psychedelic band. Not but in yeah, the strictest right. sense. I mean, they, yeah. they went. There, you can definitely, you know, hear the the influence in, in their music. I mean, you know, um, they were less a psychedelic band than say ten years after were, but they both had this real early rock and roll thing going through them, and you could well, tell. And, and to, well, in the. You know, this is the band's second album, but they were, yeah. pl- they've been playing for 10 years at this point. Of course. So, they're veterans. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so over 10 years. I think they were started in the mid 50s with um, Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah. Yeah. So these are, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that they're kind of like, they're geezers in the rocking chair. I they're geezers. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but they're also being accepted by the younger, uh, of course, younger crowd. Yeah. Yeah. No, maybe, maybe these guys were the bridge between the, uh, don't trust anyone over 30 people, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that was always a little bit of a, I don't even know how seriously it was taken. I mean, some people would say it mostly because it was sort of a, a joke and other people would say it because honestly they just, I mean, there's always been that tension between certain generations where mm-hmm. one grew up with a, the world being a certain way and then another one comes along and the world's completely different and yeah. they can't see that doing the same thing doesn't work the same anymore. And yeah. that's the same thing happened to our generation and the generation after us. And yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's always going to happen. It always <sighs> has happened and it always will happen. The waltz. People were freaking out over the waltz when it started because it was one of the first dances where uh, men and women were supposed to be up against each other. It was scandalous at the time. Jeez. What's next? 
Oh, my pearls. They need clutching so bad. <laughs> What's next? So are we going to see a woman's pantaloons? <laughs> An ankle. <laughs> the horror. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> anyway, uh, moving on, the next song is called Lookout Cleveland. And they were playing really good on that. Yeah, that was tight as hell. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, I thought it was interesting, like, when you hear that intro, it's very uh, early rock and roll, but then the drums come in and it gets this sort of funky thing, but it's it's on the one and the three. The, yeah. the 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 kick is on the one and the three, and it's it gives this really interesting um, rhythm to the thing, and it's uh it never fe- feels wrong. It's just different, and it's just yeah. really cool. Yeah, you can you can hear that clavinet in the background too. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I mean the guitar work in that was great. Um, the 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 keyboards i mean just it was just a really they were just firing on all, all four cylinders on, on the baseline was really good too yeah they, I, could, I picked just, that up yeah they're really on on their game on that one um you know i i, I wonder uh like i'm sure you know playing together you know for you know 15 years or however long it it was uh, at this point certainly helped them. I mean, I leave on helm. Wasn't their original drummer. They had a few other yeah. people. With, I, I don't know when he joined actually. He joined in the fifties. He was there in the fifties. I know was that. He? Oh yeah. Okay. Cause I, I know he wasn't on the Dylan tour. Maybe he was, he was away for a bit, but I know he was, he was around in, in the band. I think he, <sighs> Wasn't he on at least part of the Dylan tour? Um, I don't know because there was another drummer that was uh, what's his name? It's gonna drive me nuts if I don't. Um, there was another drummer that played. Uh, um, hmm, I can't remember the name. Is Mickey something? Oh, okay. I can't remember his name. Anyway, uh. Um, they've been playing together. Anyway, the band, most of the band have been playing together for a long time. And I'm sure that definitely helps. Um, I wonder what it was like recording these guys and producing, like it, it had to be pretty easy to, to be the producer on this, just, you know, have the band set up and play. It's like, yeah, that, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. And then just all you have to do is sort of adjust levels and whatnot. Yeah. 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 I doubt there was uh, really anything they had to really fix. So, um, yeah. Um, I was also thinking on, on the uh, Dylan sessions, they also had Al Cooper on the organ. So, as well, I don't think they had Garth Hudson. Yeah. Well, um, I don't think, I don't know if the band ever recorded with Dylan on those albums, but I know they toured with him. Yeah, I know. I think some of the band were in the studio with them. I just don't remember who. I can't remember. <laughs> it's all a little blurry, but uh, yeah. Well, I know Al Cooper played um, organ on uh, Like a Rolling Stone. Uh, yeah, he was, apparently he was primarily a guitar player at that time, and he just sort of sat down at the keyboard and sort of made up some of the stuff, and they just liked it, so they kept it. And yeah, then he well, became a keyboard player. 
Well, if you listen to that that song, he's always a beat late. And the reason he's a beat late is because he's watching the guitar player to figure out what chord he needs to play. Right. So, but it works with the song. It's like, boom, bling, with the organ. It's It sounds cool. It come, yeah. Playing on two, uh, coming in on two, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, it's it, it doesn't, it's not wrong. It absolutely fits. It, it's, uh, I think it would sound a little bit weird if you suddenly heard him come in on the one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, on highway 61, the band did play, but they, uh, they played on blonde on blonde. Uh, okay. Anko played bass. Um, Robert Robertson played guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think of as full albums, the blonde on blonde is probably my favorite of the three albums, Yeah, but I love a lot of the music on all of them. Some of my favorite songs are on some of the other ones, but I think as an album, Blonde on Blonde is the winner for me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you know. It's either Blonde on Blonde or Highway 61. Highway 61's uh, got a lot of good songs. Yeah. But I just thought, I've always loved the sort of, Blonde on Blonde has this sort of feel to it. It just feels so together as an album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is, yeah, it's, uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll. No, that might that show up. I, I, definitely. That'd be nice if it came up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, we've got uh, three songs left. Uh, so the next one is called Jawbone. Here we go. All right. Okay, that was cool. Yeah. That Very was... interesting time signatures through that. Yeah, that was um, that was a little more psychedelic, I guess, um, but still, you know, still kind of uh, bluesy and rooty, yeah. and you know, what uh, one of the things that I noticed is uh, there was one particular part um, where the it was instead of the bass and drums driving the rhythm, it was the piano and the drums, and the bass and the guitar were sort of doing a in unison doing a playing the melody yeah um, which was a cool choice i always like it when like you know paul mccartney is uh sort of does more melodies on the on the bass rather than just doing the rhythm Um, Mm. i always like it when bass players sort of take a melodic approach yeah yeah me too uh melodic bass players have always got like there's something about i mean a good bass rhythm going uh you know, going along is always, I mean, I just love it. But when you throw in some of those, uh, more melodic notes, uh, play a bit on the dusty end of the mm. fretboard. Um, yeah, you, you get some really interesting sort of, uh, um, just, just a different effect when it comes to, uh, it can completely transform a song. Yeah. Um, you know, give it a little I, bit more life. Yeah. I always think about, um, you know what uh, you know we we talk a lot about uh, like we d- dissect a lot of uh music and and we talk about like melodic bass lines and and uh, and just different parts and i always wonder someone who's listening to this who doesn't know anything about music you know i wonder if they 
are able to just like to hear that or if it's just kind of like they all these elements are kind of added up and they like the song they don't know why they like the song but i know why they like the song but they can't quite articulate but it's it just i always wonder like what these different parts interesting parts what it sounds like to someone who doesn't necessarily know much about music um well you know all i gotta think back is to when i was younger and i didn't know much about music um yeah sometimes it was sort of hard to sort of pinpoint what it it was that you exactly like it or why it was you exactly like it uh what it is you liked about it i mean to say (laughs) yeah um so yeah, I kind of do know what it's like. It it is uh for me, I find it a little bit more fulfilling to being being able to know what it is um personally about a song that it is and I can actually pinpoint to what it is cuz part of me wants to, you know, make music of my own and if I know what it is I like about something then I can sort of use that idea in something maybe I would want to do. Mm-hmm. Um that's sort of the way I approach it it's just like oh that's a great idea i could do something like that yeah 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 um yeah that's right i just i always wonder uh you know what uh i guess yeah it's not uh too hard to remember what it was like but even then like uh, i (laughs) i don't know if it it must be like uh, watching a, a, f- a film with a, a, f- a filmmaker and, you know, picking yeah. the different shots they use and all the, uh, you know, they're... Oh, they'll, they'll be analyzing it in a yeah. way that completely goes over our heads. Yeah. They'll be pinpointing uh, different sort of cam- uh, framing techniques. They might even be able to figure out, oh, they use bounces for that. And, they you know, that, that's got a, you know, a filter that does such and such on this and that's how he is. And, and all you know is that what you're seeing is making you feel something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. the same way with music. What you're hearing is making you feel something. Right. And you don't have to know what it is to enjoy it. Exactly. But it is kind of fun when you do. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I almost feel like it doesn't ruin the music for me, but I almost feel like it would ruin a movie for me because it would pull me out of the being within the because uh, the movie is it's trying to tell a story but it's it, it seems to be more essential to movie watching experience than it would be to a music yeah. listening experience where you can get the story behind a song but it's not like the song is i mean it can transport you but it's not transporting you to the same thing it's without you know the visuals the same way as you might have visuals in your head and it sort of depends on what part of your brain you shut off or, or turn on. You have a little more control over that. Whereas a movie, it's kind of, they're showing you, they're, uh, they're showing you basically what they want, how they want you to experience. And that's the whole point for having all these different tricks and to know all these tricks almost kind of feels like, I don't know, maybe it's probably different for some people. Some people probably pull it apart and say, Oh yeah, that, it, they they find it really fun being able mm-hmm. to pull it apart and and because maybe they aspire to make movies they want to know these tricks too so um and they really enjoy it. in fact they might enjoy certain things like 
people think, oh, that's a crap movie. And this other guy comes along, what do you mean that's a crap movie? It's a brilliant movie. Did you see the way they filmed this? Did you see the way they filmed that? Yeah, but the acting was shit. Yeah, the acting was shit. But the, the filmography, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the filmatography? Uh, cinematography. Cinematography. That's yeah. the word. Yeah. Cinematography was awesome. Yeah, you that's know, true. I, uh, I, um, I recently, maybe a year or two, or maybe three years ago, some, some, at some point in the last few years, I watched Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can, first of all, it's not, it's not a great movie, <laughs> story wise. Hmm. Um, I always liked it, but it's it's okay. It, but it, yeah, it seems a little, especially by today's um, tastes, it's a little bit. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't fall in line with with, with say uh, what you would expect from a, a movie experience today. Yeah, but uh, I can see why um, a lot of movie geeks liked it, and it's because. First of all, it was a technical uh, achievement and, and a huge leap forward in terms of uh, filmmaking. Um, and uh, a lot of new techniques were developed in that, uh, um, over for that movie. So I can understand why film geeks like that movie is because um, it's a historic, more of, instead of being... Um, a film to enjoy and to be immersed in the story. It's more like a historical document of, uh, um, you know, certain techniques being used, uh, for filming. So, um, uh, I sort of see what you're talking about, but I've always kind of liked the story. Yeah. Uh, Um, yeah, it is interesting. It's, it's, it's a bit long. Oh, um, it's, but, it, it's uh, amazing. There was no standard length for movies for the first half century. No. Um, it really didn't take until they were really trying to... Um, I guess it started with like, um, oh, probably drive-ins where there, there was really the... Uh, and and the... Uh, it's funny, uh, probably the B-movies and, and horror flicks of that thing probably dictated a standard feature-length movie more than, say more highbrow stuff did yeah. because that was just what the industry requested. And then they were trying to pump out as much, just make as much money at, at a time. And, and they wanted to put two back to back, which is where the back to back features used to come from. Mm-hmm. Even when I was a kid, we would go to the drive-in theater and there were two movies back to back. Yeah. They wanted the movies not too short, obviously, because it's good. An hour and a half, they figured, was pretty good. So if you're there for like yeah. three hours, you're getting two movies. And yeah, it was basically, they just sort of, you know, a ballpark. It was never like straight on uh, an hour and a half. But that was, mm-hmm. in general, that was the the average movie length. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess it would probably the mid-50s where that was really starting to become a standard thing. Yeah. Um, oh man, yeah, this Christmas we watched, um, white Christmas and that movie's oh, gotta be close to three hours. Yeah. You don't want a double feature <laughs> for two, three hour movies. You don't want to yeah. be, you know, at the drive in for six hours. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That would be a little, a little much. 
anyway, <laughs> we somehow got into films. Yeah, I don't know how we got here, but uh, well, the, we're uh, comparing it to music. Yeah, we've got uh, two more songs, um, and this next one is called "The Unfaithful Servant." Cool. I like the horns at the end. Um, that was really cool, and I liked the guitar playing on that. Was really interesting. He was. Um, doing that like staccato picking like you would on a mandolin but mm -hmm. it was on the guitar that was that was cool yeah yeah the uh the horn section there was that uh saxophone it might have been i think this one might have been more of a tenor sax but it was playing alongside a uh a french horn i think in there yeah. so that was just really neat uh blend of sounds it gives it sort of like a a little bit of a softer edge to it mm -hmm. so when it like sort of hides in the background a little bit it's there you can hear it but it's not again it's it's a little bit softer than even most um horn sections would be it's just yeah. got a different edge to it yeah it doesn't have that uh the harsh because uh, the saxophone can be kind of harsh sounding a and trumpet will cool. pierce yeah a french horn has got like that lower it's got a, it's it's like you took took the tone knob of something like a trump trumpet and turned it down or something exactly. like that it's got that um low uh uh timbre to it i guess it's just yeah. a really neat sound yeah um and you know the the funny thing is that i i noticed too uh this is uh rick danko um, singing that and you know it's it, his performance was great he wasn't always on key but it kind of that kind of worked you know it was this kind of loose, oh, yeah. sort of swampy kind of um it's stuff like this where voices like them and and people like well well you know people like bob dylan and neil young thrive doing stuff like this too i mean that's that's what their voices work for. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't want to throw Neil Young in like an opera or something like that. No. Everybody'd walk away. No. Yeah. I think he would walk away too. <laughs> um, but yeah. I just, I just, I just had a vision of an opera crowd, and Neil Young comes out with his black Les Paul, to get some feedback going. What, what, he's got a helmet with horns on it. Sure. And he's <laughs> yeah. I would love to see that. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. doing Carmen or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Um. But yeah, no, I, it's, it's like, uh, it is a lot like, um, um, what was I going to say? Oh, his voice, like being off, off, uh, off key and kind of out of tune that because this, this song in particular, and, and a lot of songs on the album does have that, like you were saying that sort of front, front porch kind of feel, you know, it's, uh, sort of like maybe this song or maybe what they were going for is sort of like regular, regular folks just getting together and singing on a Sunday afternoon or something, you know? And that's the, his voice, you know, being off key that just, you know, that just works for that sort of feeling. Right. 
But again, he's never that off key, and it's no. always just enough. It's it gives that dissonance that that gives it like a realism. Because again, yeah. sometimes if some if a voice is too on, it's actually off putting. It's too right. robotic, and people go, "What the hell am I listening to? Like, yeah. who programmed this?" Right. No, so, exactly. I'm not saying he's a horrible singer no. or anything like that. I'm just saying just, just it, it's a it's a very a human bit. voice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's uh exactly. Yeah, it's the human uh human element. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. No, I thought it was a uh a great song. Mhm. But uh, anyway, we have uh one more song left. Um and uh it's called King Harvest Has Surely Come. All right. I think that one's actually my favorite. Yeah. That's just a great song. And, and and I don't even care that it sounded, it, rec- it was recorded like a demo. I don't care. <laughs> no. Uh, that's part of its charm, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was cool. I like the uh, the two organs, mm-hmm. one playing the low notes, one playing the high notes. Yeah. Um, Unless it was Garth Hudson's two hands. But oftentimes the band would have two organ organ players. Well, yeah, there's Richard Manuel who yeah. would play the keyboards and, and Garth Hudson would That's right. also play. Yeah. Um, so I think one was on one organ and one was on the other. Yeah, it could be. Um, unless it was overdubbed, I don't know. Um, it's not impossible. But again, if they got two people, they might as well use them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're getting paid for something. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, and what I liked about that it was it was uh, really heavy in the low end. Yes, the the low, like I said, the low notes on the organ, the um, the The, bass and the drums were really you know tight on the low end. But and then the bass had had a uh, thump to it that I actually really like in that. I don't know if that was a byproduct of the recording, but I just like it. Yeah, it could be, yeah. yeah. Um and uh again, uh Robert Robertson doing some really great guitar work on that. Mm-hmm. And you're right, he he is he's not a flashy player, but he and he's uh but he's really um really comes up with some interesting lines. He he's he's a tasty player. He's definitely a capable player, but he doesn't feel the need to show off. It's just not important to him. Yeah. Um but yeah, it's it, he's never lacking. Yeah, he's uh, he's great. I mean, all, the whole band. I mean, there's there's a reason they're called the band because they're you know top notch musicians. Um, you know, I, I you know they're they're one of those bands. I, I it's funny. It's sometimes I think they're overrated, and then sometimes I think they're underrated. You know what I mean? It's um. It- I kind of, yeah, again, it, it, back, like I've said that about the Beatles. It's, it's like everybody says they're, they're so great, but oftentimes what they, you know, show as like their high marks is, it's, it's always like a little bit, it makes me wonder. It's like, I don't know if you're really, really listening to how, what makes them great. I mean, I guess it's just, this is, I guess it probably comes down to personal opinion because again, you know, what they find great and what I find great is probably going to be different anyway, but it has always sometimes puzzled me what people find really excellent 
And then I got to listen through other things. It's just like, well, I agree this band is great, but it's not for the reasons you think they are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think with the, with the Beatles, people, maybe a lot of the time people think they're great because of their popularity. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, once you actually listen to what they're doing, it's, oh, this is, you know, this there's, is really great. There's, there's um, actually some genius going on here. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if it's the same thing with the band. I mean, people, yeah. people hear, you know, people hear the weight a hundred times on the radio Yeah, and you get sick of it. Um, and everybody and their brother and, and their former roommate will play, you know, at a local bar playing uh, the weight. I mean, it's a, it's one of those, it's th there's three songs that get are overplayed in our particular area where we're from. There's The Weight, uh, Folsom Prison, and uh, it was the other Wagon Wheel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all yeah. three of those get, yeah. Anyway, yeah. one time I saw a band play all three. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like strangling somebody. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, not that those are bad songs. No. But it's... <laughs> Come on, yeah, play something different. Something different. I want to. Yeah. I want to know your deep cuts. Right. Yeah. Well, with the band, I actually like some of their later stuff too. Like I mm. like uh, Stage Fright and Life Is a Carnival and yep. some of those songs. Um, and those are hits. Those are hits, their but they're stuff. lesser known hits. Right. You know. Well, it's from the lesser known uh, period. Other than you know, Last Waltz was what seventy seven. So that yeah, was towards the end of, uh, of yeah. that. So, and that's probably one of the biggest things they ever put out. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, and even that, that <laughs> people look at the last waltz, not as, um, a concert, you know, basically the band's farewell, but they look at it uh, as a concert featuring Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, uh, Van Morrison, not that there's not that those, not that those artists aren't great, but that wasn't the focus of it. But I think people kind of, that's what they like about it. I don't know. It's maybe for some people. Um, yeah, I know a lot of people who, who, uh, I think the, the, the last waltz, because again, they're watching a great band back these people mm -hmm. and, uh, they're watching what is actually a really great concert. People doing there's there is some real magic happening on that stage when they're playing that stuff, yeah. Um, and Rodney Hawkins was there too. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the band. They're a they're a great band. Yes. <laughs> and uh, this album, I want to go. I want to go back and listen to Big Pink just to compare the two. But uh, this album was really great too. There were a few surprises on there, but. Uh, um, yeah, I, 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 um, it's, it's exactly what I was expecting. I, I have heard this album not in a long time, but, uh, yeah, it's just yeah. a great album. I thought it was sort of interesting, like King Harvest, this last song, it almost feels like it was a bonus song tacked on the, on the, on the end, but yeah. it's probably one of my favorite tracks. It's just so good. Yeah. It's actually a really strong closer, but again, it feels like a demo. They went, oh, that's pretty good. Let's put that yeah. on. Tack it on at the yeah. end. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and I think that was actually released as a single. I could, could be, be wrong, but yeah. Maybe it was a B-side. Could be, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, this uh, this is a great album. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, uh, you can check us out on uh, at polyphonicpress.com. Uh, uh, you can drop us a line at uh, polyphonicpressmusic at gmail.com. And if you want to help out and support the show, you can do that at uh, buymeacoffee.com slash polyphonicpress with a burp in there. And uh, <laughs> at polyphonicpress. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm Jeremy Boyd. And I'm John Van Dyke. Take it easy.